0: English-speaking people have known about the Monacan Indian capital, Roswick for more than 400 years.
1: How do we know? Well, in 1608, the legendary Captain John Smith, a Jamestown colonist, captured a Monacan from Rasuwick. John Smith said, tell me about the towns that your people live in. And Amarolek named 12 towns, and one of them, he said, was the chiefest of all to whom other people pay tribute.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today we take a closer look at that chiefest of all towns, an historic site that might now be threatened by a water project. Scholars believe for thousands of years, Monacan Indians lived and were buried at the fork of land between two rivers, the James and the Rivanna. This is the site believed to have been the Monacan Indian capital, Rossowick. It's also where a new development wants to put a pumping station to draw water out of the James River. Monacan chief Kenneth Branham suspects every living Monacan today has ancestors buried at Rossowick, and those remains could be disturbed by the water line. With Good Reason producer Lauren Francis met with the chief at the Monacan headquarters in Amherst, Virginia.
2: Chief Branham was raised right here in Amherst County.
3: The racism here in Amherst County was extremely uh, harsh on our people.
2: He says that people couldn't recognize him as Monican just by looking at him.
3: You couldn't look at us and say, hey, that's a Monacan Indian. But the last names, Branham, Johns, Hamilton, Red Cross, uh, Clarks, you know, once that last name came out, oh, you one of them. So, you know, our people didn't advertise that.
2: One time, as a kid, Chief Branham asked his grandmother why she didn't share more about their heritage.
3: Why didn't she teach us more about who we were, our ancestors, mm-hmm. her grandmother? And you know, and she said, "Well, if the wrong people hear us talking about it, we might not have a place to stay."
2: Today, the chief doesn't hesitate to share Monican heritage, and he wants to preserve it for future generations. Uh, you
3: asked me about. Rasovac, see how the creek comes together. That's the way
2: Rasovac looks from the road. It, it looks like, like I said, a slice of pie. The James and Ravanna rivers intersect right at the Monican site.
3: That's the ideal place you would want a village. Protected on two sides by water and trade, canoes, and stuff like that coming to that point.
2: The chief describes it as a paradise. With thriving native communities and the three sister crops, Squash, corn, and beans in abundance.
3: Other tribes came and traded, you know, not only with Monacans, but other Indians that got there. So it was a, a, a very busy place, and it rivaled some of the cities you would have seen over in England and France in size and population at one time.
2: Now the site is completely overgrown. But if the Army Corps of Engineers approved the multi-million dollar plan, a water pumping station will be built there.
4: Um, uh, you know, public water is, is incredibly important.
2: That's Justin Curtis, lawyer for the James River Water Authority.
4: So we're trying the best to meet the needs of the citizens uh, that we serve by the water, uh, while also being sensitive to the uh, Monacan Indian nations and others that have expressed objections.
2: Curtis argues that it's not clear that this specific spot is Raswick.
4: Just want to be clear it's not to say that there wasn't significant it's not a significant site it absolutely is there was significant occupation there so we're not denying any of that so just want to be very clear but if we're asking the question about was that specific location Rosawick I think the uh, there's still fair questions to be asked uh, and that could be answered through further archaeological study that could, could potentially definitively answer that question.
2: However top scholars are convinced that this site is Rassowick. The density of artifacts and burials tell them that this was the chiefest town.
3: That site is not only our history but it's Virginia history and it's this country's history.
2: This is Monacan Chief Branham again.
3: Why would you want to destroy that? And there are ancestor remains we know in there.
2: The Monacans have proposed more than a dozen alternative routes for the pump.
3: The respectful thing is to Go around it. If there was no other way, you know, we' still fighting, but there is many ways, and we have shown them another way. And there is progress
4: in the talks.
2: Attorney Justin Curtis says the water authority is still considering other locations.
4: Um we've continued, even though we have a, a permit application pending for that particular site and project location. It doesn't mean we've put our pencils down and stopped evaluating other alternatives and we haven't stopped
2: talking with the tribe. The chief is determined to fight for a different pump location. And for him, the fight is bigger than just Rasavik.
3: If we cannot stop this water pump from being put on our sacred site at Rasavik, I don't think it's a site in Virginia that we can save.
2: Over 12,000 individuals and organizations have expressed opposition to the project including a majority of the 574 federally recognized tribes. The project is currently being reviewed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Chief Kenneth Branham says the tribe is willing to take the issue to the Supreme Court. For With Good Reason, I'm Lauren Francis.
0: Chief Branham credits an anthropologist named Jeffrey Hantman for introducing him to Rossowick back in the 1990s. In the gift shop of the Monacan Ancestral Museum, he pointed out copies of Hantman's newest book, The Monacan Millennium.
3: Jeffrey Hantman wrote this one, just recently came out several years ago. And uh, you know, he, he did a lot of study on Monacan India.
0: Jeffrey Hempman is a professor emeritus of anthropology at the University of Virginia. He's also one of the thousands of people who's expressed opposition to the water project, to the Army Corps of Engineers. He has no doubt the site in question is Rossaway. Jeff, how do you know Rossowick existed as the primary town of a Monacan chief 400 years ago?
1: English-speaking people have known about Rosowick for 400 years. Native Americans in Virginia have known about Rasselwick for a 1,000 years, if not more. How do we know? Well, in 1608, the legendary Captain John Smith, a Jamestown colonist, captured a Monacan from Rasselwick. John Smith said, tell me about the towns that your people live in. And Amarolek named 12 towns, and one of them, he said, was the chiefest of all to whom other people pay tribute. And so from 1608 on, we've had a map with the name Raswick on it at the confluence of two major rivers, and that's the place that is threatened with disturbance right now.
0: When did you first visit Raswick?
1: I first visited Raswick in the 1990s. Uh, I had been working on some of the other chief's villages, in the interior of Virginia, and I wanted to see what was on the surface at Rassawick without disturbing it. So I visited that place and could see clearly on the surface objects that were made by Native Americans 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and older. Stone tools, pottery, bowls made of soapstone, all the all the things that were elements of a town. There was more there. There's just the quantity, the number of stone tools, the variety of stone tools, the amount of pottery. That all said, here is a major town. And we're told by a reliable source that it was the chiefest, that was Amarolic's term, the chiefest town to whom others pay tribute. I know from my own research in the region that burials cemeteries are associated with chief's towns, and some human remains have been identified at this place. And I'm reasonably certain, as certain as one can be, without disturbing the site, that there are more burials that would be disturbed if the project goes forward.
0: What's your best guess about how long Rosowick had been a thriving town back when John Smith's people first learned of it?
1: My best guess is that it had been occupied for about a 1,000 years. That's a long period of time. Its location is where the two major rivers in the Virginia interior then flow down to the area that the Powhatan Indians lived in, Chief Powhatan, his daughter Pocahontas, and also where Jamestown was. So this place had been lived in for a long time, And in 1608, its location made it even more important as the Indians of the coast, the English, and the Indians of the interior, who are the Monacan Indians, came together to negotiate who would control this land.
0: And yet compared to the thousand years it had been there, it was abandoned in relatively few years in all likelihood after the encounter with the Europeans, right?
1: That's true. And that's long been called a mystery. Based on oral history, things I've learned from native people in Virginia, it's not that great a mystery. The Indian people in the James River, such as those at Rasselwick, knew who the English were. They knew what their motive was here. And although they initially tried to trade with the English and establish a trading relationship, that didn't last. They were also concerned that the Spanish would be coming into the Chesapeake Bay and up the James, the Monacan people withdrew into the mountains and away from the James in the late 1600s, early 1700s.
0: That early after contact,
1: right. Well, about a century. A wonderful quote. Amarolic, the man I had mentioned before, told John Smith why they were leaving the region. And the answer in his own words was, we heard that the English were a people who came to take our world from us.
0: You said that people have been digging up Indian sites since Thomas Jefferson's time. Did Thomas Jefferson know the Monicans?
1: Thomas Jefferson did know the Monacans, and he witnessed their visit from Point South to a burial mound near modern-day Charlottesville, Virginia.
0: So his homes were built on Monacan lands?
1: Yes. The University of Virginia is built on ancestral Monacan land. Monticello is built on ancestral Monacan land.
0: Philosophically, what's your point about Americans have been digging up Indian sites since his time? Literally, of course, yes.
1: Unfortunately, for the most part, that we're talking about Jefferson's dig in 1784— and his dig actually seems to have prompted a lot of what we would today call amateur archaeologists or looters, in the worst case, prompted a lot of illicit, disrespectful digging of sacred cemeteries. Uh, no one would have done that to uh, a European, uh, an Anglo cemetery. They did their excavations well into the 20th century and concluded that the people who they dug up, had no relation to the Indians who lived around them. And it feeds the notion that Indian people had disappeared. They once lived here. They built these mounds. They built these large towns, but they have disappeared. Nothing could be further from the truth.
0: If we took a poll, would most Virginians have even heard of the Monacans?
1: I would have to say most Virginians have not. I mean, then that's just a failing of the way we teach Indian history in the East. Our students in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, when they learn about Native Americans, they'll study the Plains Indians, they'll study the Pueblo Indians. And it's shocking to me, and I've worked on curriculum development quite a bit. It's shocking to me that there's nothing about Indians in the Eastern United States. So no wonder they haven't heard of the Monacans, or the 10 other recognized tribes in Virginia. There's still a sense that, you know, Andrew Jackson forced Indians out of the East. And there's a sense that he was successful of that. And there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of people, hundreds of communities that tell us that isn't true, that people, native people persisted against all odds. Even when the government declared that there was no such thing as Indian as a race on the census form.
0: The Virginia government?
1: The Virginia government did, and most state governments in the eastern U.S. did. That's the story of eugenics.
0: It required the Indians to check a box white or black?
1: Correct. And Indian was not allowable. That caused a lot of pain for a lot of people who identified as Indian or Indian and black but it was all done by the state dictating to an individual who they were. And it took until the late 1990s and the first part of the 2000s for the state of Virginia to apologize for its eugenics policies and to allow Monacan Indians, Indians across the state of Virginia to change how they were listed in the census. The practical implication of that was enormous because the tribes in Virginia, all recognized by our congressional delegation, by our governors, were not granted federal recognition. And the reason for that was that, looking back through census records, there was inconsistency. But that inconsistency was imposed by the state. The balance of power has changed, and I think we see that at Raswick. Fifty years ago, the destruction may have already taken place, and now tribes are fighting against the local authorities and the Army Corps of Engineers, and I believe they will win.
0: What went through your mind when you first heard of the plan to build a water plant or run a pipe across this particular site?
1: That was a terrible idea, and it would never happen. And I've seen these kinds of projects larger than this one not happen much to the shock of the local planners.
0: You know, what if proponents say this is really just mostly digging a trench for a small pipe to extract badly needed water from the river? Is that such a disturbance of the land?
1: Yes, I don't have to hesitate. First of all, the trench is wide, that's been discussed. The likelihood of disturbing human remains is tremendous, which will shut the whole project down, according to federal and state law. And last but not least, this project is not essential. Who is this project essential for as compared to the the will, the religion, the history, the rights of the Monacan people? I sympathize, but they have to find another way.
0: In the extreme, though, aren't all new developments on Monacan land in that area? Even if they found another site, it would still be land once used by Monacans.
1: Sure. And the answer to that is Monacan people, to their great credit, have offered alternative paths that will go through Monacan site, but not the heart of Rasawik. There are ways of balancing the needs of developers, the needs of the Indian communities, the archaeology. I've been involved in dozens of projects like that. There are compromises. So I hear your question, sure. Isn't, aren't artifacts going to be, aren't objects from the past going to be everywhere? Yes, but is the amount of disturbance, is the significance of the disturbance equal in the center of Rasselwick versus someplace a few miles away? No, American, preservation law is written that way. Let's find the balance. But sometimes there's no, there can't be a balance. And the weight of that tips to where sacred sites, sacred historic sites are concerned.
0: Jeffrey Hintman is a Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of Virginia and the author of The Monacan Millennium. The National Park Service recently acquired another important Native American site in Virginia. It's the Powhatan capital, Werowocomoco, where Pocahontas lived with her father, the Great Chief Powhatan. William & Mary Professor Martin Gallivan was a principal anthropologist at the excavation at Werowocomico. He says if he could wave a magic wand, he'd have developers at Rosowick follow the Werowocomico model and include Virginia Indians from the beginning. Martin, you have studied the native people who were in Virginia before the Europeans arrived in the early 1600s, especially the people who lived along the rivers and the James River. When did you first learn about the Monacan tribe?
5: I grew up in Virginia and knew a lot about Pocahontas and the Powhatan Indians and Pocahontas's father Powhatan. But I'd never heard of the Monicans until I started graduate school at the University of Virginia in the 1990s.
0: How many Monicans were there at the time of the first arrival by the Europeans and Captain John Smith exploring with other men into the central part of the state?
5: We would guess that there's about, there were about 15,000 Monacan Indians living in the central part of the state in 1607 when Jamestown was established.
0: Did Thomas Jefferson see Monacan Indians and Monacan villages as he would canoe near his home Monticello along the Rivanna
5: River? He did. So Jefferson remarked upon a group of Monacan Indians who came to his father's land on the Rivanna River and proceeded through the woods directly to a burial mound that was located on the river on his father's property. Uh, and the story was that the Monacan stayed for some time, uh, conducted a ceremony, and then left. Rossewek was about 50 miles downstream from where Thomas Jefferson lived and, and from where that story about the uh, Monican Mound took place.
0: Did he or any of the Europeans of John Smith's time make reference to Rasawik or see it themselves?
5: There are references to Rasawik in the early colonial record. There's an event in 1608 when English colonists ran into and had a small skirmish with a group of Indians capturing a Monica named Amarolik. Amarolic's account in 1608 described the Monacan world. He described Monacans living on the James River drainage and a related group of Manahoacs living on the Rappahannock drainage. Those two groups of Indians were part of the same uh, political and cultural world. So we know a lot about the locations of Monacan and Manahoac villages uh, from Amarolic's account. The account led to the Design of the John Smith map, which shows the locations of these villages on on the two rivers.
0: If you and I were to walk through the property now, what would we see now? What might we have seen then?
5: So, in 1608, when Amarolic describes Rasaweka as the chiefest town of the Monacans, it would have been a, a big, sprawling village with 100, maybe 200 residents. There was likely a core of the village where the elites lived, where There would be houses concentrated near the rivers and then other farmsteads or home uh, households in the area surrounding that central core. The folks would be growing corn, beans, and squash. They would live in uh, wooden houses called Yohakins. And that scene is very different than what we'd see there today. Uh, Today at Point of Fork, it's basically woods. It's an overgrown area. It's not currently being farmed, but uh, it's an area that's rich in the archaeological record. And we know for certain that around A.D. 1200, so that's 400 years before Jamestown was established, Indian groups up and down the James began to settle large villages. They began to grow lots of corn, beans, and squash. But these large towns were established up and down the floodplains of big rivers like the James from A.D. 1200 on up through the early 1600s when the Jamestown colonists arrived.
0: Has it been hard to preserve Native American sites in Virginia and elsewhere?
5: It has been hard until recently to preserve Native American sites. The overwhelming focus among preservationists has been on preserving colonial history, uh, the Civil War history, the Revolutionary War history. Those stories are seen to be central to the American story. And oftentimes, American Indian sites were not seen as really part of those narratives. More recently, though, People have begun to recognize the importance of Native history, that it is part of American history, uh, and that it's just damn interesting. So there has been greater success, thankfully, toward protecting them, as we've been able to do at Werowocomico.
0: Tell me about Werowocomico. What's that site?
5: So Werowocomico is the Powhatan equivalent of Rasawek. It was the capital of the Powhatan world in 1608 when the colonists arrived, when John Smith met Pocahontas there uh, at the site that was her father's home. Werewolf Comico is located on the York River, uh, and we conducted excavations there between 2003 and and 2010 and really found a remarkable array of features and artifacts reflecting many, many periods of Werewolf Comico's past.
0: And has it been preserved? Has it been protected from development?
5: It has. Werewolf Comico has been protected from development, thankfully. Currently, the National Park Service, which owns the land, is developing this site as a heritage location. Where in the past, if you traveled to the Williamsburg area, you might learn about colonial history at Colonial Williamsburg, or Civil War history at the Civil War sites in the area, or even Revolutionary War history at at sites like Yorktown. In the coming years, we'll be able to learn about the Native past at this national park called Wawakanico.
0: How helpless do you think? Virginia tribes people have felt when they've wanted to call attention to and preserve historically important sites but didn't have the means to do it themselves?
5: It has been an uphill battle for the Monacans and other groups to get public officials to recognize the importance of their past and of the sites that are connected to that past. The Monacans have fought really hard to see Rasawek preserved, and I'm on the same page. I want to try to help them succeed in that. But what we did at Werowocomico, before we even began excavating anything, is that we reached out to the descending communities of American Indians and asked them, what would you like to see happen here? Would you like to see us investigate this site? And if so, what sort of questions do you have? And what sort of approaches do you think would make sense? And we did our best working with a, an advisory board, all native advisory board at Werowocomico, to put those wishes into action. And the result was really fabulous. We were able to do good research, good archaeology, and also collaborate closely with these American Indian groups.
0: Do you think this moment of pushing for social justice that we're in across America may yield good things for the efforts by Virginia tribes and other Native people to reclaim their heritage?
5: It's a really remarkable time, Sarah to be having this conversation. People are waking up to different kinds of history, histories of injustice, histories of displacement when it comes to American Indians. And they're recognizing that those aren't the stories that get told. It's really exciting to see people bring other stories to the fore. One of the stories that uh, needs to be told uh, more fully is the story of the early colonial period and the native role in that, a site like Rasawek would allow us to bring those stories out a bit more prominently so people would understand their history alongside the history of the English colonial venture at Jamestown.
0: Martin Gallivan is a professor of anthropology at William & Mary and the author of James River Chiefdoms, The Rise of Social Inequality in the Chesapeake, Galavan's also currently writing the field guide for Werowocomoco National Park. This is with good reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. Amy Clark grew up hearing about the Cemetery of Enslaved People on her family's property in Appalachia. Years later, she decided it was time to truly honor that site and the people buried there by uncovering their history. It went
6: beyond my role as a researcher to my role in this family, my role as a mother, uh, my place in history.
0: We'll hear more from her later, but first, Clark has been working with William Isom from the Black in Appalachia Project to learn more about the cemetery. Isom is the director of community outreach at East Tennessee PBS and the research coordinator for Black in Appalachia. He says researching Black family histories in Appalachia is like piecing together an intricate quilt.
7: One little piece here and one little piece there, and and you may have to wait. A couple of years and keep looking and then you'll find another little piece. My mentor, uh, Darlene Wilson. I heard her say one time that there, you know, there's these two mountains and one mountain is the official narrative. It's the things that you find in the newspapers. It's the, it's the court documents, the court records. And then there's, there's this other mountain, which is the vernacular history. It's the stories that people tell each other when they're sitting on their front porch. It's oftentimes the real story that isn't shared with the broader society. And where these two mountains meet, it's called the holler, right? Or the valley. (laughs) Yeah. And and oftentimes in the holler is where the water comes from. It's where you find the most biodiversity. And I think in, in this case by holding up these these vernacular histories and these official histories up together at the same time as equally valuable, then we can begin to, like, dig in and appreciate the biodiversities of these stories and live and operate within the contradictions of these stories. That's the closest thing that we can, I think, that we can get to something that you may consider the truth.
0: When did you first start looking into your family's history and wanting to know more about the actual history?
7: In elementary school, they 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 have you do the um, family tree, right? Once I started trying to do what the other kids in the class were doing, that information was not available for my family. And I wondered why.
0: So had there been many Black people, Black families in your neck of the woods growing up?
7: Yeah, there are were and are lots of black families in, in in the region. And they had been there since the kind of the English kind of stumbled their way across the mountains. Black folks came with them and in some cases came a little bit before them. And so slave labor built that economy and allowed those settlers to develop the towns and the counties and the coal economy.
0: What are some of the family stories you grew up on about your ancestors from that area?
7: Yeah. There's one story in particular about my great-great-granddad. His name was Kelson Harrison Isom. And the story that, as it was told to me, was that he was the son of a slave and a slave owner, one of 13 children from this relationship. And as the story goes— as these 13 boys came of age, they were emancipated and kind of sit on their way out into the world. The slaveholder father never sold any of his, his children out of the family, he never sold them down the river, so to speak. It's, it's a nice story. I mean, as, as nice as it can be. But in r- reality, I found a will, the will of the slaveholder, Gideon Eisen, which listed Kelson and some of his brothers as property. And through the the administration of that estate, they continued to rent these enslaved guys out to other family members and other farms in the area for profit, even after uh, national emancipation. And I had also found that my great-great-grandfather's brother, whose name was Gordon, was sold down the river to a slaveholder in Knoxville. And so the, the bones of the story were there, but the things that make that story palatable were not true.
0: Were there other stories about this great-great-grandfather that you'd heard from family?
7: Nobody knew where his grave was at. And so I was told that he was buried on a bluff in Hawkins County up on a mountain. And so I scoured every... Every mountain along the Holston River trying to find his grave. And then one day, I ended up finding him and his wife and his brother's grave in the woods near Knoxville. And uh, uncovered, literally uncovered his grave with my hands. I was like, oh, what's this? And like swept the leaves away and there, there they were.
0: That must have been so moving for you to find that
7: yeah, it was it was very moving and very uh, very magical because it was located adjacent to a cemetery, but it was not in the main body of the cemetery. And I remember saying, this is a black cemetery. I guarantee that there's people buried in the woods. And lo and behold, there were, and they were, they were my, my ancestors.
0: William Isom is director of community outreach at East Tennessee PBS and the research coordinator for Black in Appalachia. One of Isom's collaborators is Amy Clark. She's department chair and a professor of communication and Appalachian studies at the University of Virginia College at Wise. Amy grew up in Appalachia on land that had been in her family for generations. Amy, you were very young when you would go on these walks with your grandparents, your grandmother. Who was it who first told you about the graves of enslaved people being on the family's property?
6: My great-grandmother first told me the story. She was married to the man whose ancestors owned that land. And because I was born to very young parents, I had my great-grandparents and my grandparents and my parents for a very long time. And so I had this rich tradition of storytelling, and we would go on walks. And every so often, you know, they would retell the same stories that I had heard over and over, and this cemetery would come up,
0: particularly in the ghost stories. What would they say about the cemetery in ghost stories?
6: The ghost stories that they would tell would always take place in and around this patch of woods where the cemetery was located, but they would also use it as a marker, you know, out there close to the slave cemetery or a few yards right to the slave cemetery, something happened. And so there were stories about the devil appearing to an ancestor in the corn patch or ghostly riders on horseback chasing one of my grandmothers as she was trying to get home one night from being in the field. And so they always took place close by.
0: And help me understand where this farm was that your family owned. Well, in central Appalachia
6: in in far southwestern Virginia, Lee County is the county that points west. We're in very wooded uh, farmland. And um, very hilly, very rough terrain in some places. So we live, my family lived along a hauler. So we call it a hauler. And it's, it's along a road that is flanked by mountains and a river runs runs nearby. And our families had You know, this is an old word, but our families had homesteads all up and down that holler. And so I grew up within a bike's ride of great-grandparents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. And so just imagine, you know, woods on one side divided by a dirt road and then a drop-off and the old home place is what my great-grandparents would call this home Um, where my white ancestors lived that owned all of this farmland. And so they still use the land uh, for gardening. When I was growing up, it was used for tobacco. It's a beautiful place, and and you can see for miles and miles, um, beautiful place to sit on the front porch and tell stories, which was the experience I had growing up.
0: When did you decide to start looking into who was buried in this cemetery of enslaved people on your family's land? I started
6: writing about my family um, in my 20s and, and publishing essays because my family's stories were such a rich, I just, there were so many rich layers to the storytelling. And I remember I was sitting down and thinking about what I wanted to write in a writing workshop. And those graves came to my mind. And I thought, it's time. It's time for me to write about the graves. And so I just started by writing down everything that I knew just based on the stories that I had been told. And I began to realize that I wanted to know who was buried there, and I wanted to tell their story. And so that sort of set me on a path in 2013 that is still
0: ongoing. How many graves are there, do you think?
6: Well, when i Went back to the site after so many years, Um, and I remember this when we were walking through the woods. When I was little, we had no idea how many graves there were, but I remember we counted something like seven to ten stones, and that's all there were. So when I went back, my husband and I went back and began to clear the ground, and we began to uncover more and more stones. We found about 30 but we suspect there are more because we didn't have the equipment to move trees, and we didn't really want to do that. But we didn't have the equipment to move um, as much foliage and brush and trees as we would need to to really uncover and clear the land.
0: What kind of stones did you find? So
6: we found field stones, um, and they're chiseled into shapes. So we know we knew you know that they were probably graves. They're chiseled into mound shapes and uh, pyramid shapes, rough, rough chiseling. There's there's nothing engraved on them. They're simple field stones that were carried and placed. Are they big? The tallest one is about 15 inches tall, and the smallest one is about four inches tall. So they're not very large, not like traditional gravestones that you would find in in cemeteries. Do you think whole families are there? We know that probably whole families are there because I was able to get a ground-penetrating radar. Physicist Rhett Herman came from Radford and worked with me. I was able to get a grant to fund um, this reading of the ground. And this is something that is typically done in cemeteries where there are no gravestones or they've been moved. And because there are so many trees in this patch of woods and some of them had fallen, they had uprooted some of the graves. and so I wanted to know first I wanted to confirm that what I was looking at was a graveyard and the second thing I wanted to do was see if the order of the burials matched the placement of the stones after so many years. And so Dr. Herman brought ground penetrating radar equipment that sends um, sound waves into the ground and it bounces back from organic material that doesn't match the soil so, wooden coffins or blankets or bones, it would bounce back from that. And I can't explain it as well as he would. But it translates into a reading on the computer and we can see where the burials are. He was concerned we wouldn't be able to do it very well because the ground is very rooty and and, you know, it's very hard to roll the machine over. But almost instantly he got a reading when he started to to do the work. And so what we found was it is a graveyard, and we found clusters of burials together. And Dr. Herman's experience from mapping African American cemeteries is that when clustering occurs in burials, it's usually family members.
0: That's very moving, isn't it?
6: It is. And it it was moving for me to see them on the computer when they emerged. They emerge as red cocoon-shaped images. And to actually see them for the first time was an experience that it's hard to describe. It was a fulfilling experience for me because I felt as though, I felt like I was making progress, but I also wanted to be able to say, you know, I can see you, you exist. I'm going to tell your story. When I realized that my own family was connected to this space. And then I started to research the county's history and some of the stories that I found. I realized that I didn't have the true history of my county and I didn't have the true history of my family. And so it became really important, not only for the people buried there, in 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, in the context of that time period and all of the things that were happening socially and culturally, it became more important for me to be able to tell that story. And for my children, you know, when I tell my children about their family history, I want to get it right, and I and I want as I'm teaching them about the time period that they're growing up in this seems like the perfect opportunity because they've joined me on this journey as they've gotten older, you know, they've gone into the woods with me and, and we've talked about who's there, who's probably there. And we've talked about the history behind that. And so it, it's hard to explain, but, and it's more complicated than that, but it, it, it went beyond my role as a researcher to my role in this family, my role as a mother, um, my place in history.
0: How old are your children?
6: They're 10 and 12 now. My daughter is the same age that I was when I first became aware of the stones.
0: What did you learn about how these enslaved people came to be part of your family's history?
6: When I was beginning the research, a family member pointed to a death portrait that hung on my great-grandmother's wall. And this wasn't uncommon. This isn't uncommon, particularly among Appalachian families, to have portraits of the dead. Um, It was the only portrait that she had of her husband's little sister who had died of meningitis in the 1920s. Mary? So Mary. And so I started researching her. And her husband and her father. And all of the stories that are told about them were that her father was a slave owner, one of the richest men in Lee County, and that he had given her and her husband, who was a Confederate veteran, uh, slaves when they were married.
0: Around what era?
6: Um, this would have been pre or during the Civil
0: War. Right. About how many enslaved people had he had?
6: The family stories suggest that he had up to 40, the father, um, and that a few of them came to live with her and her family. And in 1870 census records, we do find African-Americans continuing to live in the immediate area after the Civil War.
0: What became of the African-Americans in that area in your county and the surrounding counties after the war? You know, the Reconstruction period was a very difficult time.
6: Um, and from what I have gathered from news accounts and articles and things that I've gathered, um, a large number of the African-American population were basically driven away from the county. Um, they were competing um, after the Civil War for jobs. You know, it was a terrible time, a terrible uh time in terms of, of racism and, and very little opportunity. This was a time when the Ku Klux Klan organized, and there was Klan activity in Lee County at that time. And so from, from what I've gathered, that was a large reason why so many people left as they were driven away.
0: Had you learned any of that kind of history in your school
6: years? None of it, none of that that I can remember. None of that was in my in my classroom or in my history books. I just knew that, you know, in Lee County, there were landmarks. There was evidence of racism all around us. And we in Appalachia have such a strong sense of place anyway. Place is so important to our roots, I think, because it's how we made our living for so long. It... Um, you know, between farmland and coal and timber, these extraction industries were just so connected to place. And burial rituals are connected to place. And so this story, I think, is, you know, when I think about place and I think about my family's place and my place in history, um, it's not something I can look away from. It's not something that I can deny. And I think as hard as it's been going forward to keep doing this, even when it's frustrating and you and you run into so many dead ends, anyone who does genealogical work knows this. There's something that just keeps you pressing forward. And I think one of the things that has helped a great deal is that I've had a co-researcher, William Isom, who works for East Tennessee PBS and is a documentary filmmaker. I'm aware of the fact that I'm processing all of this information and I'm telling this story as a white woman in the 21st century. And so I don't, I don't want to presume to be telling the story of African American people, you know, from a position of white yeah. privilege. It's, and, and yet I am trying to do that very thing, but having, you know, a co-researcher who's telling this story alongside, me and finding his own family roots, um, has has been enlightening for me. It's been um, it's kept me, you know, reflexive and reflective in thinking about how I may be getting it right or getting it wrong. Um, and so that's that's something that I constantly try to keep in mind.
0: In your own research, have you been able to identify the? the people who are in any of these graves?
6: I have not, conclusively. We have found the names of people that we know were living close by in 1870. um, But so far, no names that I can link specifically to those graves.
0: What do you want to achieve with all the research into these long-forgotten graves on beloved family land?
6: I think again is is not only to tell my story our story to my own children but maybe I don't know if it's right to say revise history but maybe it is right to say revise history maybe a rewriting of history to include African Americans who helped build this county who helped you know shape this county. Um, They may be few in number now, but they weren't then. And I think to deny their place in our county's history is so wrong. Um, And it does such a disservice to our younger generations. And so I just, you know, I believe in the power of story and I know the power of story. And if I can get as close as possible to building this narrative of this community that lived here worked here and rests here now
0: i think that's my end goal amy clark this is a wonderful project thank you for talking with me and with good reason thank you sarah amy clark is department chair and a professor of communication and appalachian studies at the University of Virginia College at Wise. She's also co-director of the Center for Appalachian Studies and was named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Our intern is Aidan Carroll. Some of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell.